All right, are you ready? Everything yes. recording? Yes. Your microphone's in the right place? Yes. <laughs> All right, here we go. Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. Today, we're discussing the June 1999 issue of the official Star Trek magazine, featuring a cover story on Kate Mulgrew. My son turned 18 last April, and uh, we went to Philadelphia. Mm. Uh, City his, of brotherly love. Request. And one of the places that he wanted to visit was one of the first queer bookstores in the mm. nation. And it was, it was a lovely place, absolutely adorable, amazing people who work there, three levels, mm. lots of exciting books on topic, and then other books. I, it's a used bookstore, which I love because I try to buy used everything. Yes. <laughs> and, and I support everyone buying used everything, reused, reused, reused before anything else. And I found this magazine it was amongst many there were a whole bunch of star trek magazines and i pulled the kate mulgrew one out and put it in front <laughs> uh, as you do if you're me and i took a picture and i put it on our discord and and then i forgot about it <laughs> <laughs> and and i walked i walked and we you know we had dinner and we did the rest of our stuff that we were doing that evening in philadelphia and then i checked discord and there were like a good four or five messages that were like, you bought it, right? <laughs> and I felt very obligated <laughs> to go back to the bookstore and mm. purchase the magazine. And so that's why we are doing this. Yes. Peer pressure. <laughs> yes. And I was very much peer pressured into buying my own copy off eBay. I... And going through my emails, I can't remember how much I paid for it, but I think it was like $12 plus $5 shipping. So about what I would have paid in 1999. Uh, and Me then, too. It was $7.99. Yeah. It, was, it was still $7.99. Yeah. And then it came in an enormous box, just this magazine in a giant box. So you are reducing your carbon footprint and I am very much... I am the Taylor Swift in this arrangement. Just my private jets are imported magazines. Oh my goodness. And then it just sat on my shelf for months and months while we got through all the new Star Trek. And so much new Star Trek. Almost a year later, I finally read it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it took me back. I remember the official magazines, although I didn't get these ones. I didn't get the eight dollar ones I got the like three dollar ones yeah yeah that came with amazing posters in the middle oh did you not see the fold out of the Klingon bird of prey I mean I guess I guess that counts but I prefer the ones that were Beverly Crusher yeah yeah I definitely had a giant poster of Wesley Crusher from one of those big fold out magazines I had season three Beverly Crusher with her little crimped hair. Oh, classic hair. <laughs> classic Beverly. Amazing. And that was on my wall for years. Yep. Yep. I think my poster of Will Wheaton sort of went up when I was about 12 and all of my friends were getting into boys. And I was like, 
am I meant to be doing something in this department? Am I meant to feel some sort of way? I should play along. <laughs> That's right. I, I appreciate that Will We In was your boy crazy crush. <laughs> he was quickly replaced by Jonathan Brandis, but never in my Aww. heart. That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> So yeah, this magazine, there's honestly not a lot to it and it's really amazing. Mm -hmm. Like we talk about how the internet has killed magazines, but I think it's specifically Memory Alpha has killed the magazine full of facts about Star Trek and long pieces about the culture of the Klingons. I would admit right up front, I didn't read any of the Klingons. (laughs) No, me neither. Mostly I was struck by the fact that, like, if you're buying this magazine, you probably already have the Star Trek encyclopedia, and so this is just reproducing the same information. I don't think these official magazines were good value, but I would like Mm -hmm. to shout out the current Star Trek Explorer, which comes into my library every couple of months and I read it, and... That has some interesting interviews and stuff, but it also has original short fiction. Even when it's not to my taste, I would rather have original official short stories than this is what the Klingons are about. Compared to the $3 ones with my posters, I mean, this is, again, it's super hefty. It's Mm. made on real extreme paper. It has a bunch of ship diagrams. I do not care about any of the ship's or physics or how anything works and the culture stuff I am into but this culture stuff is so wildly out of date now that it's it's like a little time capsule of culture but it's not it's interesting to Mm. to see like the Vulcan and Romulan stuff I absolutely read oh yeah, yeah and that was a trip And I love that, you know, this was done when DC Fontana was alive and answering questions about how she saw the Romulan and Vulcan cultures. And that is the aspect of this era that I want to go back and capture because I do kind of miss Mm. her contributions. But yeah, overall, this is a very, like, I read this in 20 minutes and that was reading the Kate interview twice. (laughs) Okay, let's actually go through my outline and not jump to the end even though I really really want to because the end is hilarious so putting her arms around Jerry that stood out to me too yeah yeah I was like oh oh." so (laughs) this is an interview that takes place I would say towards the end of season five and it talks about Kate coming back from her 1998 hiatus and she had gone on vacation with her sons. She filmed a UPN TV movie. She met a, go- a guy and got engaged. This is the era when she was with Tim Hagen, the Democrat gubernatorial <laughs> candidate. You know, Kate, she was fully in with like the Democratic machine in the Clinton era. It's just funny that, that that's how you describe it. I all I know is that he was a democratic politician from Sounds Cleveland. And, and As opposed to Jerry Ryan's evil ex, the Republican. Look, I think Jerry has very much moved on politically from that era. Anyway, she talks about being really rejuvenated and she's like realising that as much as she loves her kids and hates spending time away from them, she also couldn't give up acting. And then she comes back on set and the first person she sees is Jerry Ryan. And... Remember, this is right after season four. She takes Jerry in her arms and tells her it's going to be a good year. 
And from everything we've heard about how Kate treated Jerry in season four, I can only imagine Jerry being like, great, what are you going to do to me next? The cynical take is that it was planted propaganda Mm. to say those rumors were wrong. Were there even extensive rumors at the time? Like, I don't think so. I was very much embedded in fandom in this era, and I used to get a weekly text-only newsletter that was basically a roundup of everything anyone who had ever been near a Star Trek was doing, and also all the gossip. And there was a lot of stuff about Jerry Ryan's divorce and her relationship with Brandon Braga, and a lot of insinuations about that. There was never anything about Kate mistreating her. I think that only started to come out a few years later, although I think this is also around the time a book called Future Imperfect came out, and that's like a mm-hmm. journalist who was embedded for a while in the Star Trek machine, I think around season four of Voyager, and he has this amazing interview with Kate. It's a full chapter long where they basically sit by her pool and get very, very drunk, and she talks shit about Hollywood and the Star Trek machine and Jerry Ryan. Amazing. It's certainly a fascinating read, but that was the only time that I can recall that the mask really dropped. But I guess even if the rumours didn't exist, if it was happening, Mm. and again, I wasn't Mm. there, so I'm also not going to, like, I wasn't embedded. (laughs) But if it was happening, she knew it was happening. And so that moment and also everything she said about her maternal feelings for Seven Mm. or Janeway's maternal feelings for Seven felt very, with context, sort of pointed. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, my hyperfixation right now is Taylor Swift's image and how she builds it and how she controls it. And I also just read the new biography of Madonna, who was also, you know, as an artist, really shaped her image. I don't think Kate had anywhere near that level of control. It would have been insanely unusual for that era and especially a show, a franchise like Star Trek. But I do think that on some level she was aware of her behaviour and... Maybe trying to get ahead of rumours, but also maybe she sincerely saw Jerry and realised, I don't need to be fighting you anymore. I'm in a better place and I'm glad to have you as my co-worker and I'm not going to treat you like shit this season. So, the mom question. Did Kate ever give an interview where she didn't talk about being away from her kids for work? Not anyone that I've ever no. been a part of, like I that I've read mm. or been in the room with. She still to this day oh, yeah. talks about it. I truly believe that she's a good mom and she mm. loves her kids mm. and she feels feelings mm. about all of it, and that's why it keeps coming up as a topic. But I also feel that she is a woman of a certain age. Yeah, when women were going out into the workforce and it was like this thing Mm. that people talked about and it's not like they don't talk about it still but at that time it was very very much something people talked about absolutely this was 1999 again the madonna book i just read she had her daughter in 97 and people were like oh no she's having her daughter with a partner not a husband how dare i know i know (laughs) 
I mean, same Madonna, just, you know. Truly a trailblazer. But I saw Kate last year and she was saying no one in her family, not her parents, not her siblings, not her sons, will watch her on TV because they don't support her career and because her sons resent that it took her away from them. And it's like, I'm sorry, but clearly their father wasn't contributing financially. She put a roof over their head. She put them through school. She was clearly a very loving and engaged mother. And I'm sorry that she wasn't at your beck and call. Like that just, to me, seems like a really petulant attitude. Yeah. And I mean, I'm going to say that the kids were kids, yeah. but, the, but the whole rest of her family mm. uh, were training them to be like that. And like this really jumped out at me because Kate is of the same generation as my mother. And they're both from a very particular type of Catholicism where yes. there is like when my parents split up in the early 90s, there was so much judgment of her from her sisters and, and like members of the church and stuff because how dare she? I, I kind of get the same vibes from Kate's family just from how she talks about it. And it's like Avery Brooks, I had to look this up because he is so private. He has been married to the same woman since 1976 they are not Hollywood people. They are liberal arts college people. My people. Oh, his son went to Wesleyan. Of course his son went to Wesleyan. But they would have been in their <laughs> teens or early adulthood when he was doing Deep Space Nine. Scott Bakula had a daughter who would have been in her late teens or early 20s and a son born in 1999. And I don't remember ever a seeing... Baby. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't remember ever seeing anyone going, so are you worried that this job takes you away from your children? From your toddler. Yeah. Once my kid was 11, 12, mm -hmm. you know, it was okay for him to be home alone yeah. for, you know, an hour or two, whatever, after school. But two-year-olds <laughs> need constant supervision. Yeah. And obviously I'm going to, I'm going to say, I, I expect that, Scott Pacula's wife, mm. or the mother, was around and yes. taking care of the child. But that doesn't mean that he gets a pass, but he does, needless mm. to say. Many of my friends have toddlers. That is a two to three person job. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting, though, that then we come to the modern era and Sonequa had a baby while doing Deep Space Nine. Oh, Deep Space Nine. Discovery. Discovery. I know which series is which, okay? I really do. And she is married. She has her husband. She has her mother around a lot of the time, judging from the glimpses we see on Instagram. She's not a single parent. But also no one is going, so how are you a captain when you have children? And in fact, yeah. Anson Mount has been more vocal about needing accommodation for his fatherhood. Which is great progress. It's Good amazing. Job, Hollywood. I'm very happy to be able mm. to relate mm. this kind of progress. And also, I mean to poor Anson Mount a lot when I, you know, to Pike. Yes. And not actually Anson Mount. But he is absolutely vocal about... Mm being a dad and being fully invested in it and yes wanting those accommodations and wanting time and prioritizing yeah his child we all talk about pike being this great 
anti-toxic masculinity person and I don't see that but Anson Mount is absolutely I, I actually think it's a shame that Pike has sort of tainted Anson Mount in that regard because I really yeah. like Mount I think he's a good guy and I think even now for a man to stand up and say actually I need paternity leave honestly mm-hmm. in the US or Australia that means a lot it's huge. Yeah. Maternity leave is not guaranteed in the right. US. So paternity leave is like a unicorn. <laughs> and the more men who do it and mm. do it visibly, mm. the more people who have that catch it and the privilege to have a big audience. So as much as I am mean to Pike, I also think that there is this idea that Pike is the golden boy captain and Mm. this good guy who also rides a horse and is very masculine and is attractive to people who are toxically masculine and and don't think they are. Yeah. And so Anson Mount being someone who like we first met him in a Britney Spears film and (laughs) now talks about his wife and his child Mm. as much as Kate Mulgrew did. I think that those are positives and it's, again, modeling a type of behavior that the worst Star Trek fans (laughs) need to see. Yes. And feel like it's, he's still, you know, Ken, the, the Star Trek guy, Captain Ken. Yeah. But also this softy. Who takes mm. care of his, his kids and, and wants to. And the captain we haven't mentioned is Shatner, who also had young children when he was filming Star Trek. And I kind of didn't really think about him because that was such a different era and there was just no expectation of a dad being present in his kids' lives when he was at work. But we know his kids spent a lot of time with him on set and... You know, they, they had appearances in an episode. They were very much part of his life. And that's also very admirable. I said something nice about William Shatner. That's my quota for 2024. <laughs> Good job. Good yeah. job. So, and there's also Patrick Stewart. His kids were who, adults. His kids were all adults, but it, it still seems like his career hurt them mm, in mm. some ways based on things he said in his book and and in promoting his book yes i mean did his career hurt his kids or did his infidelity hurt his kids? well true yeah. <laughs> but they're related yeah yeah i think any situation where your parent is traveling a lot for work away right away yeah, yeah, and yeah. it opens the opportunities for things that and go I- down a, a path And I was kind of mean about Kate Mulgrew's kids earlier, but it is hard when your parent, especially if they're the sole parent, is not around as much. It is something that is hard and you can't just take for granted that everything's going to be okay. Like any relationship Mm -hmm. requires work. Any relationship, absolutely. Mm. Speaking of, Kate talks about Chakotay. And the decision made to sort of put that romance on the back burner. And I know that they kept saying this all through season five and six and seven, but if no romance, why so married? Okay. So this is hard for me. This is like extreme. Like like I can't, I I have a lot of 
problems. I have a lot of feelings about this because part of me, I need to get back into the me that existed in 1999. I think I shipped Jane Wayne Chicote. Yes. I, I remember shipping Jane Wayne Chicote. Not as much as Jane Wayne Paris or Jane Wayne Tubuck or even Jane Wayne Seven. But I did ship Jane Wayne and Chicote. But now when I think about it, I don't. No, and I understand. It's just interesting to me. It's sort of like, did I want this? And and at the same time, it's not like I have I have some current ships <laughs> that are very similar mm. to Jane Wayne and mm. Chicote. And I am like, get together. <laughs> <laughs> get it together and get together now. And so it's really weird. Like I want, I agree with her. Mm. She basically said, I want the Jane Wayne Chicote relationship to be this incredibly close friendship mm. where we rely on each other and we trust each other and no one knows us better. And I'm like, yeah, I want that mm. too. I agree. But at the same time, in a circumstance where I want, I want the romance, I'm like, no, that's not good enough. <laughs> and so it's just, it's interesting to me to be on this like external space. Mm. And I do appreciate those really close relationships, but I also mm. am the type of person who like any relationship that that is that, is that close has the ability to cross the line. Yeah. And I, and I wouldn't be opposed or against or surprised. Like, what's remarkable to me is Kate is saying, you know, we're always going to be close. We have seen a little romance, but Janeway's not going to get together with Chakotay. We're just going to have that connection. And meanwhile, Robert Beltran is going, yeah, I just feel like he's put enough coins in the love machine and nothing has come out. And so he's moved on. And it's like, A, not what he's portraying on screen because Janeway and Chakotay mm. were extremely married in season five. Mm -hmm. And B, they had dinner gross. together. They had yeah, like, those yeah. whole, those whole dinners. I would love to have a relationship where I just had romantic dinners with people. <laughs> that was the entire relationship. You cannot tell me <laughs> that they did not hook up before the slipstream experiment in Timeless. I'm sorry. I have believed this since 1999, eight. I have believed yeah. this since before this interview came out. I fully associate Timeless with Janeway Paris. Look, that so. makes sense. I get it. But for me. <laughs> Sorry. No, so I, no. I can't. I, I, I believe you. I would have to watch the episode again. Oh, you but... should, should definitely watch the episode again because Chakotay has a future girlfriend who is played by the woman who plays oh, I remember. Mark's ex-wife in ER and it is the most thankless female role in the history of Star Trek but also even worse than Mark's ex-wife yes <laughs> which is also a thankless, very thankless this poor a actress, horrible horrible role yeah this, that is basically this entire actress's IMDB page I feel terrible for her but oh my goodness this character she's human but she is styled just like Seska like Chakotay has a type, and Janeway is actually the outlier. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. So it's interesting. And it's interesting that, and this is, this is again, not new information. I've heard many, many times. Oh yeah. Kate was the one who was like, absolutely not. Mm. <laughs> and, mm. and that is interesting information to me because again, it feels very certain type of feminism. Coded. Oh yeah. Yeah. It is 100% <laughs> that second wave boomer strong women don't have sex, don't have romance. Right. They have to be chased. Don't have romance. Yeah. Yeah. I like I remember when we watched season 1 of Discovery and just the fact like this is how we became friends you and I just the fact that Admiral Cornwell had sex with Lorca was, and that in itself right. was not a big deal was like oh this really oh. is Star Trek for the 21st century. <laughs> yes, we've been waiting and waiting for so many years. Yes. Yeah. So so uh, yeah, so that's something. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and we'll see what happens with Prodigy. I definitely <laughs> feel like there is more room for Janeway to have that romance in Prodigy. A because it is now the twenty twenties, but also because she is not the main character. Like right, you know right. how we've talked about how Balana gets really good characterization because she doesn't have the pressure of being the main character. I think that can yes. go for Janeway yes. in Prodigy as well. My question, do you think, and this is like a little bit off topic, but mm. do you think it's going to be a, a happens on screen situation or it's going to be like a Adama and Roslyn? <laughs> <laughs> they just reveal the fact that they've had this relationship for the past 10 years. Or is it going to be a Canaan and Hera? Actually, they were married all along. But yeah, no, they right. weren't. They actually just got together. I think <laughs> we're going to find out that there is an established relationship, but not like a full-blown marriage. Like, I've seen people predicting that there's going to be a teenage Ch Janeway Chakotay child in season two. I don't think so. I understand why they think that having watched Picard season three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can only go into that well once... No, it no. becomes ridiculous at a certain point. And they've already done it twice, just saying. And the evidence for <laughs> it, as far as there is evidence, is the Hageman brothers saying to Brad and Braga, in fact, that the Doctor was not the only major guest star in season two. And first... I still think it's Harry Kim having been promoted. Harry Kim. <laughs> And I am going to go on the record in public as saying I think it's either Jerry Ryan or Brent Spiner. One of these I'm very want, in favour of. I don't want either of those things. <laughs> Both of those will upset me. No. Um. I do think the funniest thing Prodigy can do is just not tell us what the Janeway Chakotay relationship is. Like, are they friends? Are they together? Are they married to different people? They'll just never tell us. That would be hilarious. Just vague enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That would be hilarious. I actually don't hate that. That's what I wanted for Picard and Crusher in Picard and, you know. I mean, honestly, they kind of, that's that, kind of what it is, Liz. I, like, I think you won. I think you got that. Monkey's poor. I don't mind. I, I, again, I'm on record as I'm fine with how Picard <laughs> and Crusher ended up. And <laughs> they don't need to have another movie to explain it to me. <laughs> Please. God. No. <laughs> So Kate talks about how playing Janeway is intellectually and emotionally challenging. And again, she's still banging that drum. And I think she is 100% correct. I think Janeway oh, absolutely. is a role with a lot of layers. And 
I enjoy your note here that Kate would hate being in the MCU <laughs> because I can't imagine anything she would enjoy less. <laughs> well, so it was in a paragraph that was titled like Action Hero or yes. something. And it was basically Kate saying, I don't like doing the Year of Hell. Mm. I, wa- I want to do more episodes like Night. And I love the Year of Hell. It's mm-hmm. one of my favorite episodes of Voyager and of Star Trek. But I totally understand as an actor. Oh, yeah. That it would be way more fun <laughs> to do Night. Yeah. And to do those, again, emotionally and intellectually mm. challenging Star Trek episodes. That makes perfect sense to me. You don't want to be doing the action stuff. Like, that's mm. boring. You don't want to mm. do stunts. You don't want to do blue screen stuff. You don't want to do the same scene over and over mm. because it's time travel. None of that is fun for an actor. <laughs> Go watch Dakota Johnson talk about <laughs> Madam Webb. It is the best. I love every single interview she's giving because she's just like, this is horrible and it's ruining <laughs> cinema. <laughs> and this is how she's promoting the film. It's, it's so good. It's the best thing that ever happened to the MCU because no. she is a hundred percent correct. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I think Kate just <laughs> talked about like how she enjoys the novelty of doing something like macrocosm and getting to be in her forties and all of a sudden an action hero. But also that is not what she wants to do, even a significant minority of the time. And I so I don't blame her. I, I, it's so funny because Patrick Stewart I was Lily about Ratner to say are always like saying I love doing the mm, rough and tumble mm. and I love getting buff and I love punching things out and MK is like nah yeah and, and that's just this is really interesting to me. And I feel like Avery Brooks was the same. Like certainly Cisco was a, a physical character and he could handle himself and he had some great action scenes. But when I think of Avery Brooks as an actor, I think of him as this very serious, extremely intellectual presence. And I think that's why he's mostly done stage and he's mostly been teaching the last, you know, right. since Deep Space right. Nine. I mean, fully, Avery Brooks, you're correct, is the liberal arts mm. persona, not the acting persona, and certainly not the action star no, persona. No, no. And it's kind of funny, because Chris Pine, who is probably the most action hero Kirk of all Kirks. Yes. Is also fully, liberal arts Fully guy. liberal arts yeah. Like, he's disinterested. And I, I love Chris Pine. He's so but great. If you look at the films that he chooses, he chooses these incredibly mainstream stories where his entire purpose is to point a spotlight on the woman mm. or the, you know, marginalized person that he mm. is acting against. And like every character since Star Trek, like Star Trek was his big break. And then he's like, I'm going to take this yeah, and I'm yeah. going to turn it into a career based on pointing a spotlight on black women. And I'm just like, good. I love you. And th- like multiple people have said, oh yeah, I was in a class on erotic creative writing and Chris Pine was in my class and he was not creepy. He was a lovely guy to share a class with. Right. And I'm like, the fact that multiple people have come out and said that. Have said this. Yeah. Yes. And he's very much an intellectual. He uses yeah, yeah. academic speak in mm. his interviews. It's just like, that's the mm. way he, he thinks. Mm. He, he thinks in that realm. And I just think that's really interesting 
And I love to see these, the different ways that people approach it. And it, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with Pacto Stort wanting to punch people out. No, no. In fact, I think if you're, <laughs> like, like, if you're a man who looks like Patrick Stewart, getting to be right. an action hero must be so empowering. Exactly. Everything works out. And mm. for the same, for Chris Pine, if you're a, a man who looks like Chris Pine, getting to be the person who lifts up mm. women mm. <laughs> instead of being the person who's like playing a cat all the time, mm. I think that that is also powerful. And it's the same thing yeah. as like, modeling masculinity the way that Anson Mount does, that he's doing that same thing. And Anson Mount's last mm. big role before Pike was playing a former Confederate soldier, which, I mean, gross. So for him, this is also <laughs> a chance to be something he's else. He's a good guy. Yeah, yeah. Sonequa gets to play a complicated woman who grows in confidence and becomes a really nurturing and powerful presence without being maternal. And has multiple romances. Yes, yes. And I think to be nurturing without being a mammy is very still unusual for a black woman. Mm -hmm. She nurtures, but she mm -hmm. is nurtured in return. So what we're saying is Star Trek good and Stu bad. <laughs> I can't believe you, the I know. MCU I know. apologist, is saying I this. am very much an MCU apologist. There is a lot of good within the MCU, and I'm going to give an amazing presentation on Loki someday. Oh, yeah. But the way that they treat their mm. people is very bad. As, is, is, is actually horrible. Horror stories have come out of every version of Marvel. The current one is that um, one of the Eternals actors had to go into therapy for an eating disorder because of how... Oh, oh there is a newer one. Someone has died this week on the set of a new Marvel series. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's horrible. I know. I am currently unsubscribed from Disney Plus and boycotting Disney. So wow. I don't know these things. Obviously, like, Kate Mulgrew would never... <laughs> Just the very idea. Kate Mulgrew will never be in Marvel. Kate Mulgrew will never be in Star Wars. Kate Mulgrew is perfectly happy with her career as it is. You know, give her a quirky weirdo thing like Orange is the New Black and she'll be there. But she's not going to do mainstream nonsense. No. It's not going to happen. I feel like the closest she comes is her voice work for Dragon Age. And even that, mm -hmm. I think, is basically putting her in a recording booth and letting her gently nibble around the edges of the scenery right. for a few days. <laughs> and then the last thing that I found really interesting in this interview is they talk about Jerry Taylor's Mosaic, a book which we famously have problems with, and Kate uh, recorded the audiobook for that. And then she's like, yeah, but I've got my own backstory. I'm not going to tell you it. Chef's kiss. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was so perfect. I was like, yes, Kate, exactly. Mm. And and because that is, that is fully true. I think that as an actor mm. or any creative, certainly as an actor, but also like as fic writers, as people who are invested in the character in any way, however you want to describe your role being invested in the character, you come up with these things. Like I've said again many times that my backstory <laughs> for <laughs> Katrina Cornwell is is vast and absurd. 
Yeah. But it's my backstory and I'm fully invested in all of it. And it doesn't matter what's real. For me, there is a point where I'm watching something and my brain just goes click. And suddenly I'm not just seeing things from the perspective of that one character that I'm about to become obsessed with, but also I am thinking about everything that brought them to that point. And certainly it sounds like for Kate as an actor, she needs to build that story in order to create a character that we can become that invested with. Right, right. She has to be invested first. Yeah. And this is her process. You know, I've acted and that is absolutely what I do. It's like, mm. they didn't tell me these things. And so I'm going to fill in the blanks. And it doesn't matter if it never comes out. And it doesn't matter if anyone agrees with me. I'm playing this scene mm. with that in mind. And that's what happens. And it brings, it, you are more connected to the character. Mm. So you can present yourself in a, a more realistic way. That is so funny because I did two years of drama in high school and I was extremely engaged with the theatre kids of my school. And, you know, in class one day we were talking about building a character and I asked the teacher about creating a backstory and she was like, I don't know what that is. No one does that. And I was like, oh, oh, I'm doing it wrong. And then I stopped doing wow. drama classes and stopped doing the school plays and stuff. That's so, oh my goodness, that makes me cry. I, like, I'm, I'm so mad at whoever that was. Because I'm, yeah, I'm having this conversation I mean, I with I'm you now. I want to look up that, that teacher and just message her and go, yeah. hey, you fucked up. Yeah, because turning, turning kids away from something that they like is, mm. like, that is the worst thing that you mm. can do. I, I was lucky that I was raised by a theater professor mm. I wrote this whole thing about how he never really gave me advice. He would give advice to all of his students. And he would also tell them that they wouldn't make it. And he <laughs> never told me anything either way and was sort of hands off on my personal experience with theater. Like he didn't want to tell me one way or the other. Mm. He didn't want to support me and he didn't want to. But I absorbed it anyway because yeah. I literally grew up in the theater. I watched him talking to his students. I mm, watched him mm. directing and I watched the students asking questions. Either they say, what's my motivation? And, and that's like a joke, but it actually does help and it does matter. And my father was very much like, it doesn't matter what your motivation is as long as you're playing it. Yeah. Like it, you can choose anything. My father was very non-method. Mm. He thought that that was sort of nonsense. And he was more like, make up your own story yeah, and play that. Like, yeah. it, it doesn't have to be something that you lived. It has to be something that you care about. It has to be something that you believe in. Yeah, And it, you don't have to remember being traumatized. <laughs> you have to believe that you were traumatized. And that's how you play that. No. And I learned that at a young age. And I took that into my acting. I was a dance I was more of a dance person, so very movement-based and very body-based and very, like, how do you connect the emotion to the physical portrayal? But it was still the same thing because it was still sort of like, what is the story that you're telling mm. with the movement? And as long as you believe in that, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter if it's real. It doesn't matter if it's right. It only matters that you believe it and that you care about it. And I think that all of the things that Kate said from 
I went away and I had this awakening and I felt, mm-hmm. I realized that I cared about acting. And then I brought that feeling to Jerry Ryan. And then I brought that feeling to the work that I was doing. And that's mm-hmm. why it was emotional. And that's why it was intellectually challenging. Like, I understand why an action scene isn't going to be something that she connects to, but something that forces her outside of her comfort zone is going to be something that she connects to. She really inspires me in this, you know, silly little pat interview (laughs) that that I learned nothing from, but I just, she sounds so, she still sounds that way, you know? Yeah, yeah. These 25 years later, she sounds exactly the same. Seeing her last year was extraordinary because I saw I saw a Tumblr that was like Kate Mulgrew bingo and it was like funny story about the Kennedys, family anecdote, something very lighthearted, boom, she drops her dead sister on you. Like yeah, she, there are exactly. stories that she always tells and most of them I knew but hearing them from her. Thinking about that, that she is telling those stories now and she was also still telling those stories 25 years yeah. ago. It's one of those, like, longevity is something and Mm. legacy is something that, Mm. like, we talk about. But we are. Like, I am the same person I was 25 years ago, and I'm also more. Yeah. (laughs) And she does tell those stories differently now. And sometimes she talks about seeing Discovery and meeting Sonequa and realising that she has paved the way for different types of women to be different types of captains. Whereas... Mm -hmm. I think the idea of how she could play Janeway was a very rigid box. Oh, yeah. A, oh, set absolutely. Of, a set of rigid boxes. And they tried to tell her how to play Janeway yeah. and she was like, no, I'm just going to do it my way. Yeah. And I applaud her for that. I applaud mm. her for having mm. the confidence and the agency and the wherewithal to say no. Yeah. <laughs> and they didn't know mm. how to deal with that. So no. they just were like, okay, we'll point the, we'll point the <laughs> camera and it'll happen. Yeah. Fine. Because, again, part of it was because it needed to work. Voyager needed to work in order for UPN to work. And so they were like, well, we're just going to roll with it Mm. because you don't have any other choice. And so it was sort of like all of the stars were aligned kind of thing. Whereas I think with Archer, you know, Kate comes from a theatrical background that's very collaborative. It's a space where, as Gates McFadden found out, an actor can bring more ideas to the table than is permissible in television. Bacula came from a network television background, and I don't think he was as adept at building a coherent character despite the many conflicting boxes that they wanted to put Archer in. Because this is one of the things that I get into fights about on Reddit. I think Archer is even more inconsistently written than Janeway. 100%. People just don't complain about it because he's a man. Because he's Scott Bakula. Not even just a man, he is Scott Bakula. And this is my whole problem. Mm. I I have an mm. Archer problem. My Archer problem is that he's got Bacula and he's <laughs> charming to the nth degree. And mm. and so you can't be like angry at him because he's got Bacula. Mm. But Archer is the worst. <laughs> and Archer is fully inconsistent. Mm. Again, it's part of why I love him, but it's also part mm. of why I love her. Picard is never gonna be my favorite captain because he actually is super consistent. Yeah. <laughs> like, He's not what people think he is, but he is fully always Picard. Mm. Mm. And Cisco too. Cisco is yeah. fully always Cisco. And the people who are weird mm. <laughs> and and not consistent, the people who are kind of a mess, 
those are my people. And that is Michael Burnham too. I think she is more consistently yes. written than Janeway or Archer, but just simply the changing of showrunners and the changing of priorities as Discovery evolves yeah. makes Michael accidentally maybe a more complex character than they intended. I think part of it also is, the, and this is the changing priorities, but the fact mm. that they changed time zone time yes yeah, yeah. Like, they just like rewrote her entire life mm. and threw Sydney Quinn into it and like make this work thanks and she was up to the task and she did amazing and I really appreciate it but mm. it's absolutely it's like this is ridiculous no you can't put this on one person and they did oh they absolutely <laughs> did I think <laughs> fully did the fact that Sonequa, as a series lead and an executive producer, still does SponCon on her social media sometimes, says to me she is not being paid enough, and I'm angry about it. Well, and she's also everyone's mom. Like, she hosts barbecues for yeah. them all. It's, yeah. Like, she cares about creating an atmosphere mm. on set mm. that is welcoming and warm. Yeah. And... I don't think Kate did that with respect. And I completely understand. Like, uh, It's not anyone's job. It's not Sonequa's job either. No. She just does it. No. Because that's who she is. Sonequa is a leader. And I think growing up as a black woman in America, she is sufficiently engaged enough to know that people expect her to save the world. And that's not fair. But at the same time, mm -hmm. she sees like someone seems like someone who will see a challenge and rise to it, right. and she'll, who she'll stand up, and who will build her community and maintain it. Whereas Kate doesn't have that pressure, and she had older kids, and mm -hmm. when filming stops, she needs to go home. Mm -hmm. Neither of these are inherently wrong or right approaches. Mostly my feeling is that Bakula is a good actor, but he was not in the right context to build a more coherent Archer the way Kate built a more coherent Janeway. Or Sonequa I mean, builds like, a coherent Michael. The, the behind the scenes at, at Voyager was awful, but the behind the scenes at Enterprise was... Worse. Next level bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, they had very little chance to make a good show. No, no. Starting with the fact that Brandon Braga was fully burnt out, Rick Berman was moving into a creative role for the very first time, and then they were like, okay, we're going to hire this very inexperienced underwear model as our female lead. Wait, why isn't she a good actor? Just a messy, messy, messy show. Messy. So, 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 so bad. So behind the scenes, drama-rama. So much. <laughs> Let's do a quick run-through of the rest of the magazine. There's an interview with Jason Alexander in light of his guest appearance in Think Tank, which is fine. They asked if he would like to be a regular in Star Trek, and he was like, if I was available, I would 100% do it, but I'd have to play the captain. And given that he is now playing the Doctor in Prodigy, I think that's very funny. <laughs> true. Very true. And I just want to shout out, very early on, there is... A section called listings and it's like upcoming videos and there are one two three four five star trek related books coming out in the month of april whereas now we get one every six months at best yeah and then there's a reference to something called 
cyber action digital trading cards that you can <laughs> download and swap. And I'm sorry, did Star Trek fandom invent the NFT in 1999? Apparently. I mean, wasn't this what, like when Neopets... Oh, yeah. The funniest thing about NFTs, which are all hilarious, as long as you don't actually invest in them, is that they 100% existed 20 to, to 30 years before now. It is not a new thing. When you mentioned Neopets, <laughs> I was suddenly like, I have never been a Pokemon person, but I 100% believe that Pokemon invented the NFT. Yeah, I'm sorry that those things, like, they existed so long ago and it's stupid to mm. think that they didn't and that they were like this is a new thing it's like this is not a new thing when the when the internet was created mm. so were those <laughs> and it's just stupid to think it's otherwise so yes those digital trading cards are 100 NFTs, and they're just as stupid then as they were now yes and then there's not really an interview with dc fontana but she's all over the sections on vulcans and romulans and do you it's... need to get some spapple shipping yes. out of your system? I do. I do. <laughs> I need to get... I just want to say that 25 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, DC Fontana, who was like Ms. Vulcan, said that Spock and Christine's interactions in the naked time proved that Spock had emotions. Yes. And I just, I needed that to be like out there for everyone to know and understand because Accurate and true, and everything that they're doing in Strange New Worlds is correct, yes. and people who think it's bad are wrong. She also cited this side of Paradise, which was her first full script for the original series. Yes. It's the episode that introduces Spock's Spores. hot SX girlfriend and uh, Layla. Layla, who I, I understand is very deeply hated by the Kirk Spock shippers because they I mean, hate okay. bisexuality. So. I mean, they hate Spock to have any other love interests. Mm. But somehow, like, Kirk is allowed to have other love... Anyway, whatever. Double standards. It's harder to deny that Kirk has other love interests. Well, uh, I'm sorry that there are, <laughs> like, many different love interests that Spock has. Like, mm. oh, well, get over it. But the way I feel about Janeway Chakotay is the way I feel about Spock and Kirk. So I understand that I am in the minority and that I am wrong. However, I'm also right... And Spock and Chapel are great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were great yeah. in the 60s and they're great now. And then two, she talks about Journey to Babel <laughs> and how she only really had anything to do with the Sarek and Amanda mm -hmm. subplot. And she was like, Sarek married Amanda because he loved her. Obviously. <laughs> and I was just like, I love everything about this. On the other like, hand, she also doesn't like the Spock-Romulan-Commander romance in the Enterprise incident. And with the greatest of respect, Dorothy, you are wrong. Also that romance wrong. is amazing. <laughs> that's wrong. You're wrong there, but that's okay. I forgive you. As my boss likes to say when we're having contentious debates and I have to admit it and everyone's talking at once, reasonable people can disagree. That's right. In good faith. I just, I'm going to be banging my spapple drum for the rest of my life. You will not be normal about this. And I am sorry, but that's just the way it is. Everybody's going to have to get used to it. Speaking of apologies, the final page of this magazine is a Q&A with Tim Russ. 
And Tim <laughs> Russ is known as a massive Trekkie and a really charming, gregarious, friendly guy. And throughout this interview, he is basically giving one word answers. It is the worst. It is so bad. Okay, so what I say here is that the Tim Russ Q&A is so incredibly awkward mm. that now, 25 years later, I find the need to apologize to him on behalf of all fans and all journalists everywhere. Uh, it is yep. the most painful, horrible, I just cringed the entire time. And yes, Tim Russ is amazing. Yes. Tim Russ can talk about anything. He is so passionate about mm -hmm. nonsense, about the smallest things, because he's like incredible person who cares about things. And this is painfully bad. They ask him like, which Star Trek characters he found sexy and yes. who he had a crush on and when he would wear a uniform and he's like when i was working yeah. on the show it is disgusting they ask oh my god which character would you most like to be and he says i would like to be a combination of several and then the next question is not tell me more about that or tell me who <laughs> it's who is your favorite alien did a five-year-old like this like a 15-year-old boy and who he didn't know anything about people like that's who asked these questions. It is so upsetting to me that I was like, Tim Russ, I'm so sorry that you had to go through this. And it is legitimately 25 years ago. Like he doesn't remember, but I am upset on his behalf. It actually makes me wonder if the interview was conducted by email and they just sent a list of questions and he, I assume he can't type, painstakingly yeah, picked okay. out every answer. That's okay. why it's so short and why a question is not responsive to the answer before it. This, this is literally the first question. This is the beginning. Mm -hmm. What was the first episode you remember seeing? The Menagerie, TOS. How old were you? I was about 13 years old. What were you wearing at the time? It's not a question to be asking someone about when they were 13. I'm just going to put that out there. So he, he says, I have no idea. And I'm like, obviously you have no idea. What? A, who would answer that? How would anyone anywhere think that that was an acceptable question? And then print it in a magazine. Who thinks that the answer could possibly in any way be interesting to the reader? I am upset. I'm upset about the whole thing. Like, it's just, I don't understand. I, did you ever have a crush on any of the characters? No. Like his answer is just no. What I'm actually picturing is like a briefing with Neelix, with Neelix trying to interview Tuvok. Yes, that is correct. That is correct because mm -hmm. Neelix would come up with these these yes. questions and Tuvok would be like, I'm going to answer the question. Who did you have a crush on? I did not have a crush on anyone. Yeah. The yeah. end. Mr. Vulcan, <laughs> when you rejoined Starfleet, what did your wife think? She thought it was logical. She supported my choice. I don't understand. I don't understand why I like I read that and I was just like, why would you print this? No. I would have just been like, I choose not to put this in my magazine. 
because I'm embarrassed. I would take the extremely lovely headshot of Tim Russ and I would just make that a pin-up on the final page. You know how teen magazines would just have an A4 page that was just a photo of a non-threatening boy and you could rip it out and blue tag it to your wall? That's what I would have done. So yeah, and that's right, that's the last page. That's what you get. That's the end of the magazine. So you've read through from cover to cover Mm -hmm. and and I've forgotten everything else that I read because it was that bad. Yeah. And I would never buy another one. Yeah. I am a little tempted to get my craft knife and cut out that headshot of Tim Russ and glue it into my diary. I mean, I support that. Thank you. I think you should do it. Yeah. I used to buy these incredibly expensive imported magazines and then I would cut them up and use them as collages. That's what they're for. No, I know. I'm like... It's 100% what this is for. These days, I guess I have access to a high resolution scanner and a good printer so I don't need to cut the magazine up but I could sounds very satisfying thank you for listening to Antimatterpod you can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com including links to our social media credits for our theme music and sometimes transcripts of our episodes apparently Apple is introducing an automatic AI transcript feature and I'm very I'm very eager to see if they do any better than the fairly expensive app I subscribe to. I will say, I recently read our past tense mm. episode, mm. and it was great. So, yeah, you know, when yeah. we have transcripts, they're, they're really good. Yeah, I read the same. Read us. Read yeah. us. It's good. <laughs> yeah. This year, I will try to make more of an effort to get transcripts out. Anyway, you can follow us on Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, and Blue Sky, all at AntimatterPod, and on Mastodon at Antimatter at 10forward.social. If you like us, leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews on any platform, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. Also, we have a problem where our first 63 episodes are not available anywhere except on our hosting server. I don't understand. I'm trying to look into it, but it's just really confusing. So It's such a random number. Yeah. And every time I look it up, every time I look it up, it's like a listener saying they're having this problem. And then the answer is talk to the podcast hosts. And I'm like, but Dr. I am the clown <laughs> podcast host. <laughs> Join us in two weeks, and it will be two weeks this time, I promise, uh, when we'll be discussing the original series episode, Space Seed. <laughs>